Amen. Thank you, Patrice. Thank you, worship team. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Ecclesia. Let me start with a few announcements this morning before we uh, jump into our text this morning. Today starts our week of prayer. If you uh, are sitting there, there's probably a brochure nearby uh, describing we are, uh, I, I see a lot of new faces this morning. We're thankful you're here. Uh, we are in the process of moving into a new building and uh, that we are going to occupy as our Sunday gathering location. And we really have set aside this week as a week of prayer leading up to moving into that new space. And, uh, and, and so we wanted to cover that entire week, every single hour, with someone, a part of Ecclesia, connected with Ecclesia, praying for our church. And so uh, I know that our app space available. Uh, you can click on the QR code there or go to our website, our app, and be able to access that. And we would love for you to join us in prayer. Uh, that's beginning today. Uh, community groups. Uh, are going to come to a close for the fall tonight. Tonight is our final gathering for community groups for this season. We'll relaunch those in January. We'll announce where those community groups are meeting in January. And uh, we do that for many reasons. One, to give our community group leaders a break and rest. And it's not an ongoing commitment. So you're committing to gather regularly with these people, open the Bible together, pray. And, uh, and, it, and it gives that, that sense of break. A building update uh, as I mentioned, we are praying. We anticipated being in this next week, and, uh, and that may still be the case. We don't know. There's a lot to get done this week. I will encourage you, the best way we can communicate with you is via our app. And so we are going to be making a call at some point this week, uh, whether or not we're going to do that this week or the following if you did not receive a notification this morning saying that I-80 was closed, that's because you don't have Ecclesia notifications turned on. And you should turn those on. That way, you will get the base next Sunday. If not, we will be gathering here next Sunday, or we will be gathering at our new space next Sunday. And our app is the best way to update that uh, for you. Next Sunday, we're also doing our Join in the Family lunch, an opportunity to come, be a part of the life of Ecclesia, hear our story, hear what it looks like to really commit and belong and, and really just join us in the mission that God has for us. And, uh, and then also next Saturday, Sunday, we're going to be prayer walking the neighborhood. There's two times uh, set aside for that. All this information is on your app. I would encourage you to go there. If, uh, if you want to uh, remember anything that I said in the last five minutes, that'd be a great place to go. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and really ask God to prepare our hearts again this morning as we look at 1 John. Father, our ears, our hearts, our lives are open. Would you speak to us? Would you speak to us through your word this morning? Would you encourage us with this message of truth for us? Would we not only know, but believe the reality, your love for us, and that we would in, in, in part go and love others. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we have a letter of, of first in the final four messages of First John. We've been walking through uh, the letter of, of First John, John's letter, uh, for the past several weeks, and we find ourselves in the in the final four messages. And what's interesting is the final four messages that we're going to look at over the next few weeks describe 
the coming of Jesus, the purpose of why Jesus came, and it just so happened to coincide with the Advent season. If, uh, if you haven't been in a church that has traditionally celebrated the Advent season, Advent simply means coming. And so when we talk about the advent of Jesus, we talk about the season of Jesus. And so somewhere around 4th, 5th, 6th century, uh, the season of advent was regularly celebrated. And it wasn't looking at Jesus coming into the world for the first time, but Jesus returning to the world. It was a season of waiting. When you read the Old Testament, you read about prophecies of this coming Messiah, this coming king. And the Israelites were waiting for this coming king, this King Jesus who would come, who would rescue them, who would redeem them, who would set them free. And so there was this season of waiting, and then with the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, we we see Jesus break into the world, and we, we see the angels say that, With this news of the coming Jesus, it would be good news of great joy for all the people. We, on this side of Jesus, we're awaiting the second coming of Jesus, the second advent of Jesus. In John chapter 4, it's for you. 3, it says, and if I go, Jesus speaking, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so we are waiting. We find ourselves in the last days. We're saying waiting in, in, in expectation for the coming of Messiah. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. We look at the brokenness of our world and we're like, come, Lord Jesus. We're, we're waiting. We're longing. We're expectant that Jesus is going to return. And so Over the next four weeks, what we're going to look at is we're going to see that along with the coming of Jesus came four gifts to the church. Four gifts to the church came along with the coming of Jesus, and this morning we're talking about the advent of love, the coming of love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, and I'll tell you right now, there is no way for us to cover everything that's in this passage this morning. We could spend weeks, years, unfolding everything that's here. So if you're like, oh man, he totally missed that verse. I, I know that you want to get to lunch sometime today, okay? So as succinctly as possible this morning, I, I want us to look. First John chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It says, this means that it was made visible. What was made visible? It says, the love of God was made visible. How was it made visible? How was the love of God made visible? It was made visible in God sending his son to the world. And so Jesus coming into the world, Jesus came morning to display the love that God has for us. So if you're here this morning, here's what I want you to hear. God loves you. And, and I know, like you're here and you're like, hey, and I totally, like we got out of bed for this. We know that message. Like we, we've heard it. And I totally understand. Let me illustrate it like this. I know it's hard to remember for some of us, but some of us used to travel 
by getting on this big metal object that would increase in speed as wind traveled underneath the wings and it would begin to take off into the air and cruise at incredible speed through the sky and this is called what? An airplane. How many of you have traveled on an airplane in the last few months? All right, fewer of us than would be if we were looking back two, three years ago, right? If you haven't been on an airplane in a while, um, you know, most of us, we get on an airplane believing we're going to reach our destination. No one going away on a business trip looks at their family and says, hey, kiddos, you know, I'm going to get on this uh, metal object weighing, you know, approximately 150,000 pounds and it's going to take, you know, off into the air and, and you know, I'm going to be 30 guys, I want to feed in the air and, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So I want to say my goodbyes. I want to make sure, you know, the will is, is, is in the closet and uh, there's an inheritance for you. No one does this. Why? Because all of us believe we're going to reach our... How many people are trusting that we're going to do that? Because I, I looked it up. I was like, how many people die in an airplane crash, all right? It's one... The estimated odds of dying in an airplane crash are one out of 9,821. For better perspective, it says one fatal accident per 16 million flights. So here's what happens. You get on an airplane. We sit down. We buckle our seatbelt. We put on our headphones. What do we not do? We don't pay attention to the flight attendant telling us the very information that's to preserve our life in case something happens, right? Unless it's your first time on the flight. If it's your first time on the flight, you're like, okay, buckle my seatbelt, yes, okay, yeah, so there's going to be a bag that comes down from the, and you're like so paying attention, you're the only one. You can tell if it's their first flight because they're like, hey, you can turn to that card right there in your back, and they're opening it, they're combing through the material. But for most of us, we get on the flight and we hear, Salt Lake City. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board Flight 172 with service from Salt Lake City to Dallas, Texas. We're currently third in line for takeoff. We're expected to be in the air approximately seven minutes. We ask you please fasten your seatbelt at this time. And this is where most of us check out. So the flight attendant. And then they come back up on behalf of the crew. I'd ask you please direct your attention to the monitors or the flight attendant. There are six emergency aircrafts and they do that weird thing with their hands and they, you know, motion. The nearest exit may be behind you. And you were checked out. But here's what I know. If there was sudden loss of cabin pressure, and those little bags shot out of the sky, you would be like, my bag's not inflating! Even though they told you it may not inflate, right? And you're sitting there with your life preserver and you've pulled the cord, although they haven't told you, like, you gotta wait till you exit. Crazy, it's gonna, you can imagine if we're all wearing this inflatable thing trying to get out of a plane, it's gonna be crazy, it's gonna be chaos. But to most of us, the information given meant to preserve your life is old news. We're like, we've heard it, we've heard it. And what I think that John is is trying to teach us in this passage is, hey, I know you, you think you've heard it. God loves you. God loves us. But I think what's interesting in this passage is in verse 16, and we're going to jump around a lot in this passage. In verse 16, it says, we have come to know and believe we have come to know and believe the love that God 
has for us. And I believe the whole passage, this whole passage of Scripture hangs on that verse right there. God has team. Knowing and believing the love that God has for us. There's a big difference between knowing and believing. Knowing, a lot of us know, we, we have head knowledge. I got head knowledge. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I know that. I, I got head knowledge of that. But there's not a, a heart belief for many of us that God loves us. Do we believe that we're loved? We may, our head knows, our head knows that we are loved, but we don't truly believe, we don't feel loved, we haven't experienced love. Tim Chester, who wrote the book You Can Change, says that there's a gap between what the head knows and what the heart believes. There's separation between those two things. The head knows things, but the heart doesn't believe things, and the process of Closing that gap is the process of sanctification. You actually become more like Jesus when what the head knows, what what you have knowledge of, and what your heart truly believes, when those things are in alignment, you actually become like Jesus and you see change, knowledge. And what John is saying, I don't want you to just have a head knowledge that God loves you. I want you to have a heart belief that God loves you, and I wouldn't just know a lot your hands. I, I, I want that to be true for us at Ecclesia, that we wouldn't just know a lot of things. Like in this big melon up here, like we know a lot of things. We got a lot of head knowledge. We know a lot of people that know a lot of things about a lot of things. But how do we apply that knowledge? How does that knowledge actually change our people or Yesterday, I read an article on Twitter. Yes, some people are still on Twitter. Mainly pastors and critics is what, what I find. Um, but I read an article that Tim, what I, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. Tim is what I expect is probably in his final days based on the tone that he wrote the article with and, and what he shared. This past year, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and he said this on Friday. I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but it's endlessly comforting to have a God who is infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. Therein is my hope and strength. And he posted an article to, or posted a link to an article called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. Tim, in his final days possibly on earth, wrote, I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis, but will I be able to take my own ad- advice? When the certainty of your mortality and death finally breaks through, is there a way to face it without debilitating fear? Is there a way to spend the time you have left growing into greater grace, love, and wisdom engagement? There is, but it requires both intellectual and emotional engagement, what he calls head work and heart work. So in the face of death, Tim Keller knows everything about the Bible to be true. 
He knows the reality that God has a thousand reasons and, and, and God's love for him, even in the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. He knows what, what is to await him in, in eternity. But there's a difference in knowing it in his head and having the intellectual wisdom and knowledge of this reality, and it's something different to really let that settle down in your heart. Jonathan Edwards described it like this. It's, it's one thing to believe with certainty that honey is sweet, perhaps through the universe so sweet. People, it'd be if we were to describe that to me. I can have head knowledge of that, but it's another thing to actually taste the sweetness of honey. The sense of the honey sweetness on the tongue brings a fuller knowledge of honey than any rational deduction. And here's what, I, what, I'm, what I'm getting to in all of this. What Tim Keller's doing, what Jonathan Edwards was describing with honey, is not foreign to the Bible. John says that the reality of the love of God needs to be known and believed. Known and believed. It has to be surfaced through head work and heart work. And so what we're going to do today, this text describes the result of love affecting our head, our heart, and our hands. And he gives evidence of how do we know that the love of God has affected our head, made this love, heart, and our hands. Jesus made this visible. The advent of Jesus made this love visible. But we got three questions we got to answer. Head work. What do I need to know? What does my brain need to know about the, the love of God? Heart work. What can I experience because of the love of God? And hands, what is made possible because of the love of God? What do I do with this love? And that's what we're going to get at. The first thing I want you to see is the love of God is generous. It's generous. How many of you have ever received a generous gift? Just overwhelming generosity. I was trying to reflect on that this weekend of generous gifts that I received. And, and I think the one for me that was maybe just the most unbelievable gift is being invited to participate in a church planning residency before guys Ecclesia. I, w- I was invited with six other guys to be discipled by three men for a year in Little Rock, Arkansas, where they paid me a salary, hotel stay, paid for every aspect of my travel, they paid for every hotel stay, they paid for every meal, they gave us $20,000 when we completed the residency to launch our church, and my wife and I continue, we're like, why do they do this? This is crazy. I'm like waiting for, you know, like, it's like bait and switch. I'm like, what do they want? And they've never asked for anything in return. And still to this day, they're still giving resources and loving and serving us here at Ecclesia. Fellowship Associates, we were on a call like two, three weeks ago about like, where do we see like the big C church moving as a whole and like wanting to zoom in with us and, and, and have conversation with us in that. And I'm going, why do they do this? And how do they, who funds this? And I still don't know. 
It was just such a gracious gift. It was such a generous our God gift. And, and when I look back, I go, this is who our God is. Our God, in verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest. How was it made fan- manifest? That God sent. That God gave. We've heard so often us. We read in John 3, 16, a verse that we, again, we've heard so often that it loses its, its like potency. For God so loved the world that he gave. He loved you, and so he moved towards you in generosity. He moved towards you with the gracious gift of his son, Jesus, and gave of this gift. When you love something, you give. And I just think about it, it's the unfathomable generosity of God. Talk about Ray Ortland. Because uh, Sam Alberry, who is at Emmanuel Nashville, if you've heard me talk about Ray Ortland, he serves on staff there. He said, it doesn't say, for God was so mad at the world that he sent his son. But how often we believe that. That we believe that Jesus was sent to condemn us. But he came as a generous gift to you and I. What I think about that, and particularly even as we move towards the next point, what God requires, God gives. What I mean by that is God provides what his justice demands. Everything that God is going to require of us, he's going to provide for us. The very gift of Jesus was needed so that he could propitiate, he could be the propitiator of our sin. What is that? And that's the second point. What are the things that we need to know? What is the head knowledge? You need to know that you have a generous gift of God's love, that Jesus was sent into the world as a gift of love to you. But second of all, is gracious. Love of God is gracious. The love of God is gracious. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we don't use that word a lot. We've talked about it, I think, back when we were walking through 1 Peter, because that's another place in the Bible that it appears. But propitiate means basically to absorb the wrath. Now, we don't like to talk about this, and you're like, you know, it's not very much like, it's not a Christmas sermon if we're going to talk about the wrath of God this morning. But I would tell you is, we cannot know the love of God apart from the wrath of God. If, uh, and, and I wrestled with that, and I, and I really wanted to, like, like how, do, how do I help us understand that this morning? And I, I don't know, I'm going to give it my best shot, okay? So, if you're like, hey... In like five minutes after I explained it to you, you're like, ah, it's not any clear. Well, keep working. Want to and help me understand because I'm I'm working through it. But we we sometimes want to say um, this idea that God loves sinner, God loves. Sin. I think that'd be a, a sin, right? Like I think we've heard that, and and I think that'd be a a nice Christmas message, like. You know, if we were to stand here and it's like, hey, you know, God doesn't hate me, he hates the sin. And I think God hates sinners. And he loves you also. And it's like, 
Wrath and love of God are, like, we're kind of in the midst of it. I read, let, me, let me read this passage, Psalm 5, 4 through 5. And, and I, like, it's got the word hate in it. And if you look that up, like, what does it mean? It means he hates. Evil may not he hates. Like, for you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And you're like, oh, man. Like, and that was me. I'm an evildoer. And if it, if it weren't for Jesus, like, I would be the target of all the wrath of God. Like, I'm, I'm in his target. I, uh, we, don't, we don't have pastors who preach like this anymore, but uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You should read it. Uh, let me give you uh, just a sentence, and you're like, that's not a very popular message. I get it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, and that of a, and strains the bow, and it's nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Merry Christmas. That's intent, right? It's like, wow, that's intense. And, and God's anger, and, and we don't have much of a description because the way we define anger is like this impatient, just irrational, and it's like, we're angry. God is slow to anger. You know, his, his anger is different. But I tried to wrestle through, like, how does, how does love and wrath? So, like, I'm a, I'm a dad, and I have love for my kids. And if, and, and if you try to hurt my kids, you're going to see my wrath. And there's a sense in which, like, this love and wrath coincide with one another. And it's interesting, like, I, I want us to experience that because I think we want to set that aside and it just be in a total different category over by itself and be like, you know, God's wrath is for those bad people over there. But it was actually targeted right for us. Like, his arrow was pointed at us. If it weren't for Jesus coming and absorbing the wrath of God... Now, he would experience the wrath of God. His love is gracious. Now, you may look at me, and, uh, and you're like, uh, you know, I don't, Justin's from Wichita Falls, Texas. He's not a very cultured person, but I'm going to attempt to talk about Les Mis this morning, all right? And, and it's, I, I get it, it's lame. My speed, like Christmas vacation and Cousin Eddie is probably more in my, uh, my lane, but I've heard enough pastors talk about the graciousness of God using Les Mis, because if you know Jean Valjean, that was my good French peasant, appreciate that, grows up as a French peasant, trying to provide for his sister's starving child, steals bread, gets sent to prison for 19 years, is, is out on parole, trying to find a place to crash and the bishop of the local church brings him in. 
And what does he do? He steals. He runs off with the, the bishop's silverware, right? Later on, he's captured by police. He's brought back to the bishop. And we expect the bishop to come in and, and press charges, to shame him, to ridicule him. And instead, he goes, hey, hold on a second. You forgot these candlesticks. He goes and grabs them and gives them. And the bishop says, through the guard, peace. And by the way, when you return, my friend, it's not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It's never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. And the bishop, you no longer him, and said in a low voice, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. You and I, we've been caught in our sin. We're enemies of God's wrath. We're, we're showing up for our punishment, and he's gracious. He lavishes his love. He doesn't just set you free, but gives you freedom to live with him forever. The love of God is gracious. Third thing is this. The love of God is guaranteed. What a gift. This is, again, we're talking about the head knowledge here. We're to know that it's a generous gift. We're to know that it's a gracious gift. That God, we know it's a guaranteed gift. How do we know that God loves us. How do we have head knowledge that God loves us? Verse 13 through 15, it says this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Father has sent, given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. What does he say? He said, you've been given something. What have you been given? You've been given the spirit of God. How do you know God loves you? Talk because you have the Spirit of God abiding and remaining with you. The Spirit of God, the Bible talks about the Spirit of God being our guarantee. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a warranty guy. Like, I love buying warranties. I'm the guy, pretty good. I just bought the salesman is making the spiel about, like, the warranty. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I just bought a new piece of furniture from R.C. Willie, and they're like, if anything spills on it, you know, you pay the $100, and we'll come and, and we'll clean the furniture up to seven years, and if we can't clean it, then we'll replace it. I'm like, you know my kids are going to spill something on it, so yeah, I'll buy that warranty. I want that guarantee. And he says, I've given you a guarantee that I love you, and it's the Spirit of God. And you know if you have the Spirit of God abiding in you, then you're loved by God. What a gift. Let me read a few passages. 2 Corinthians 1.22. And who has put his seal on us and has given us his, his Spirit in our hearts, there it is again, as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. 
He has prepared us for the, this very thing as God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In him you also, filled with the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, what's he the guarantee of? Our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Here's what it is. And we don't use this word guarantee in the Greek language. It's the, it's the word earnest. And, and we don't use this word unless you're buying a house. If you're involved in a real estate transaction, you put down an earnest money deposit. The earnest money deposit is you're saying, hey, I'm giving this over to you, showing you that I'm serious. I want, I want to move forward. I want to buy this house. I'm putting this down as a deposit so that to, to guarantee that I'm going to move forward with the purchase of this house. And if I were to back out in it, then I I lose that deposit. And I love this picture because what has happened is God has put an earnest money deposit down on your life. And it was costly. It was his son Jesus. He has put down the earnest money deposit into your life and he has given you his spirit and he's given you that in advance showing you he loves you, he's you, he isn't going to back out on this deal, he's going to get you to the end. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. This is the, the idea, it's the love of God is generous, the love of God, but what's the evidence the love of God is guaranteed? We got this in our head, but what's the evidence that it's actually going to affect my life? And this is what I want to talk about, like some of the heart work. This is all the head knowledge we have, but how do I know that I don't only, only know about the love of God, but I believe you're going to love God? There's two things that he says are evidence. One, that you're going to have life. And the second thing is, is that there's going to be liberty. There's going to be freedom. And he, he talks particularly about freedom of us are like, now, I like to turn it around and I go, how many of us are like, we're, we're like, what is my purpose? What is my significance? What am I here? Like, and, and it just goes to show, like, we don't have the love of God. How many of us are afraid? The world is littered with fear. And it's saying that fear comes from not knowing that God loves you. Because perfect love casts out fear. There's a liberty, there's a freedom that comes. And so these two ideas, we have life. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. And he tells us why he did it. So that you might live through him. If you want life, I know that some of us, we're like, hey, I'm, I'm existing, but we're not living. We want life. I remember when Jesus changed my life as an 18-year-old, and it was like he gave me a whole new purpose, meaning, and invited me into a big adventure. I was like, there's a significance, there's meaning. I woke up every morning, and it may sound total dorky, but I like, I woke up for golf. That's what I woke up for before I met Jesus. School, like, I woke up, I played golf. And I didn't care one lick about school. Like, I woke up, and it's like, I just want to go to the golf course. I just want to, like, play in the tournament. That's all I, I cared about. And I remember when Jesus changed my life, 
significance, meaning, purpose. There was like a new enjoyment, passion, calling. Like, this is what my life is about now. And there's a sense of when God pours his love into your life, that's the response. When it says in this passage that God is love, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this because the idea like God couldn't know, like he couldn't be love apart from the Trinity. And so there's an experience of like the perfect unity of love that's experienced between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this, this idea they call the dance. And that they're loving and in Christ, they're serving each other. There's this, this unconditional love for one another. And in Christ, you've been invited into this dance to experience this love, this perfect love of the Trinity. And what enjoyment and satisfaction experience all the way to the first, the, the first sermon that we talked through, First John, of going, experiencing that joy, complete joy. That's where it comes, this life. He's come to give us life. That's how we know that the love of God has moved past our heads. It's given us life. But it says it's, it's also we must liberty, verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So there's Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's a, there's a fearlessness. Those who have experienced, who not only know but believe in the love of God, experience a fearlessness, a boldness, a freedom. We're no longer enslaved to other people's opinions. Why? Because the love of God has been lavished on our lives. And I'm like, if I'm loved by God, what else do I need? And I know the reality is most of us think we need something more. We need more than the love of God. We feel that. We experience that. But he's given you that. And I look back at Tim Keller about knowing the love of God. I read it again. I have stage four pancreatic cancer. But it's endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. There believes is my hope and my strength. When I read that, I look at Tim Keller knows and believes the love of God. And that's the only way he's able to stand in the face of death without fear. He is liberated. Freedom. And almost dead. There's a freedom that's over his life. In these last days, death has no hold on him. There is no fear in people who have been loved by God. Last thing is this. How does it affect our hands? The love of God leads to love. How do you know that the love of God has imparted your life, infiltrated your life? It's because it's being experienced through your hands. Like you're giving this generous love, this gracious love, this, this picture of, of generosity, this picture of light, you're giving that to others. Verse 19 to 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's like, 
You can't experience the love of God and not love the people around you. It's this, it's in 2020 that I would call the scarcity mindset. If you remember back in 2020, there were things that were scarce in our world. Number one, toilet paper. Okay? Now, you know what wasn't happening? Door door, like, hey, toilet paper scarcity of 2020. There weren't people going door door, like, hey, need some toilet paper? Need some toilet paper? Unless you're the ops because they donated us some toilet paper because they found a collection somewhere, right? But like, no one was like giving away, and you're like, that's, that's, it, it's weird because like, how many of you think like giving toilet paper is a gift? Like, that, that wouldn't be a very good gift. But in like scarce supply, no one was going about like just, like, you were like taking the two ply and you're like, we better separate this, you know? You were, you were trying to, because in passion it, you were trying to figure out what, how are we going to make it, right? Because in scarcity, what do we do? We hoard. In scarcity, all we do is collect. Here's the picture I want you to have. Go to the movie Elf. He's got a big bowl of spaghetti. And what does he do? Maple syrup is in, uh, like, it's, it's not scarce. What does he do? He takes the syrup, and he's just like, let's go. He's, he's putting the syrup all over it. And this is the picture of going, you have been lavished, like the movie Elf, in syrup, all right? Like, with his love. You've been given so much love. It's not in scarce supply. He has poured it out on your life. He has given in abundance because he doesn't want it to be scarce. He wants you to give it. He wants you to supply it to the world. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus talks about the scarcity. Very detailed. I love this picture. Luke, Luke's a doctor, so he's very detailed. And it says, a woman of the city. And he goes on, who was a sinner? Like he, he keeps breaking it down. He wants you to have this picture. She had a shady peasant invited. She had a shady past. She hears that Jesus is reclining at the house of the Pharisees and she stops whatever she's doing and she goes home and she gets the most expensive young living essential oil she can find. And she packs it up and she takes off across town. She comes in the door she breaks open that bottle. She puts it on the feet of Jesus. She begins to weep and cry. She begins to let down her hair and wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair. If the Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, if you knew this woman, if you knew her past, if you knew her history, you should be ashamed of what you're allowing her to do. And he, and he told the story, Jesus two debtors in that moment and he said there were two debtors one owed $50 one owed $500 hey the person who they owed the debt to came to those debtors and said hey both of you your, your debt is forgiven and he asked who do you think loved him more? And the guy responded, probably the guy who had the larger debt 
forgiven. He says, you're right. What he says in this passage, I think, so connecting with what we're, we're talking about. He said, the loved him more, the one who owed more. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And it's, he describes this scarcity mindset. Those who feel like they've only been forgiven a little only forgives a little. Those who feel like they've only been loved a little only love a little. Those who feel like they've only experienced a little bit of the generosity of God only give a little bit of the generosity of God. But those who have been lavished with his goodness, with his love, with his grace, with his forgiveness, those who have truly experienced the love of God, he who has been loved much, if we were to take the phrase of Jesus, loves much. My question for you this morning, do you know God loves you? Do you believe God that love? And how will you give that love to the world? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful. Thankful. The word of God gives us such a description and picture and measure of your love for us. The word tells us that we can't even fathom the the heights, the depths, the lengths, the width, the breadth of God's love for us as his children. I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would experience that this morning. That we wouldn't take another step, that we wouldn't walk out these doors this morning without experiencing the love that God has for us. We were all children of wrath, as Ephesians tells us, but God in hands has redeemed us, has set us free, has plucked us from Satan's hands, and has poured out the generosity of his love and grace on our lives. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room to experience that this morning. For those who are doubting that, for those who are wrestling with that, I pray that the next few moments would be a moment of belief, that you would move them from just this intellectual knowledge of that there is a God out there, that there is a God that could possibly love me. Right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move in their hearts, remove the heart of stone and, and experience the softness of your love this morning. Father, I pray that you would 
compel us and move us and challenge us to not hoard love. There is no scarcity in our lives of love. You've poured out your love so that we could give generously. Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's going to be, we're going to have a time of reflection and response this morning. And uh, I hope in the next few minutes, as we sing, as we pray, as Greg comes and leads us in a few moments through communion this morning, that this would even be a tangible picture and expression of his love for you this morning. We're going to have a group of people in the, the back right corner here who would love to pray for you this morning, who would love to encourage you, who would love to, to encourage you. And if you're here this morning, you doubt the love of God for you, we would love to encourage you in that and pray for you. If there's any tangible need in your life, any physical, emotional, spiritual, we would love to pray for that. As big, as small as it may be, we would love to join alongside you. So our prayer team will be there. They're going to be ready. We're going to sing. Greg's going to come up in a few minutes and lead us through a time of communion together. Let's stand and sing together.